Meandering in the margins of medicine, it's the Short Coat Podcast. Weird news, fresh views, helpful clues, and interviews. By students, for students. Subscribe to our weekly show at theshortcoat.com. Welcome back to the Short Coat Podcast. I'm Dave Etler. And uh, another summer has come and gone at the University of Iowa Carver College of Medicine. A new crop of bright-eyed, bushy-tailed students will today, as we record this, don the short coat to begin their journeys in medicine. Uh, Yesterday was our student activities fair. I know a lot of us in this room were uh, present for that, including Casey McCleary. Hey, I'm back. Mark Mubarak. How are you, Dave? Lisa Weir. Hey, hey. John Pienta. I I think I was supposed to be there. Well, you. That's right. <laughs> Oops. And Aline Sanduk. Hello. And uh, you know, I'm super excited. I, I uh, met a bunch of uh, M1s who said they were interested in being on the show, and I'm excited to start talking with them about how they got here, their hopes, their dreams, their opinions, how they grow and change over the next few years. Collect those hopes and dreams before they're crushed. I was feeling very hopeful when I wrote that. Can you? (laughs) (laughs) I just finished a rotation. Can you tell? (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, the point I wanted to make about that was that my advice always to M1s when they come in is try to resist the urge to just put your head down and do nothing other than study. Uh, And I know it's really hard, especially in that first semester. What do you guys think? Yeah. Go outside. Get some sun. <laughs> get some sun. Well, you still can. Yeah. W- winter comes Winter comes quickly. Oh, I was thinking while you were still allowed to leave the hospital. <laughs> <laughs> we were just talking about like 30-hour overnight trauma calls on surgery. I just think there's this... Uh, I'm sorry. My brain is not functioning. I'm losing my words. You just had a shot. Uh, you're going to scare them all off real bad. No. Um, Lisa just got out of just got finished with her surgery rotation, yeah. took an exam today. She's kind enough to have joined us. So, you know, I haven't been here for no. probably close to 2 months. It's been a long time. No, I've missed you. No, that we always like to think like, oh, it'll get easier. It's fine. I can ignore what I like to do with my life for now or for this semester or for next semester. Like it'll get better, it'll get easier, but it never does. Yeah. I mean, it does and it doesn't. It gets I think you get used to it a little bit. Ways. Yeah. But if you don't make a conscious effort to keep what you love to do outside of medicine, like it never really gets any easier to add that stuff in. Yeah. Yeah. And it actually gets harder because then you have habits and everybody else sort of knows each other and maybe nobody knows you. So then it's hard to like find a group to hang out with or know what options there are for activities and stuff because you've already isolated yourself. What other advice would you give to, uh, to incoming students. Take Saturdays off. Take Saturdays off. Just the whole day. Really? Don't have a plan. Just take it off. Okay. Do what you want. Do nothing. Okay. I like At it. Once a day, give yourself a, a present. Don't plan it. <laughs> How do you do that? What, do you, what would you, you know, like? What, what are some <laughs> examples, John? Yeah. Here's a surprise, you know. I'm surprising myself with something. Okay. I don't know. It's like <laughs> I finished my shelf exam and I wanted my favorite overpriced lunch. So I went and I got my favorite overpriced lunch. There you go. <laughs> don't be meaner to yourself than you would let someone else be mean to you. So like if, if 
in your own head, you're going, ah, you suck. You're the worst. You're going to fail out of everything. But you wouldn't put up with someone else saying that to you. Like, that might be a sign that you're being too hard on yourself. And it's an easy trap to fall into, I think. I think there's actually an app for that. Whoa, seriously? Because yeah. I need it. <laughs> there's a website that you can program to send some kind of abusive messages at you. Um, if you're <laughs> No, nope, person... I don't need it. <laughs> Interesting. Well, the point is, yeah, so the point is that you know, you get these messages and they're coming from a place outside your head and that helps you realize how ridiculous it sounds and you're like, well, I'm going to live my life and I don't need you to judge me for I it. I, it would be I'm nice if they gave you the it. name of the person, you know, like Sarah from Colorado said. <laughs> <laughs> oh you man, I don't, I don't like this app at all. <laughs> or Sarah. Sarah, I'm going to burn your house down. E- even better would be to, you know, get really technical with it and have it like use your contacts Oh God. And then request like, it. And then, <laughs> no. it, then try to confuse you. Be like, your grandmother said. <laughs> you're ugly you. and your feet smell funny. You are worthless. <laughs> oh hey, John, how about you just send me a text like that every day? You know, one of my favorite things about the text page system at the University of Iowa is that you can send someone a message and they don't know where it came from. (laughs) Oh, really? Now, I don't use it for evil. I use it for good. And when I think people are having a hard time, I send them jokes. Oh, or sometimes just things like, you know, I shouldn't know. (laughs) And I tell them, I tell them like, yeah, you did an awesome job on blank. (laughs) <laughs> I, I once had a I probably won't ever execute this because I'm not mean enough but I want to prank somebody by just caging them 10, 9, oh God. 8 <laughs> 7 like and then count all the way down and just like but it needs to be somebody that I'll that I'll see afterwards. I'd like so that smash they can come my pager before I made it that far. So that they can come to me and like freak out and be like oh somebody's sending me these really creepy messages I don't know what's going on <laughs> and then you'd be like it was John <laughs> That, well, that's a rational assumption. It was probably me. Yeah. yeah, I can probably blame it on you and people be like, no, that makes sense. Well, one of the things you touched on something I feel like is important, which uh, Casey, which is the, you know, don't treat yourself worse than you would let other people treat you. And I, and I like that maybe not because it's super practical, because I don't know that I would be able to stop treating myself poorly. <laughs> <laughs> so, so what you're saying is, this. but what I'm saying is, it's a really fantastic thing to remember when you can. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. And obviously, you know. So it's not a golden rule. It's more like a gold-plated rule. It's a, it's a, it's a golden rule. John. It's like a speed limit. It's sort of an, yeah. a, like an advisory, but you're not always going to follow it. I feel I don't, I don't know for sure, but I feel like I'm reading more lately about medicine's willingness to talk about mental health issues and medical education, and maybe that's just a, you know a recent spate of of article or a couple of recent articles I've read, which give me hope. Um, Because every medical school and teaching hospital has challenges around um, mental health of their students and of their, um, especially their resident physicians and probably also, and definitely also their um, more senior physicians. And I feel like uh, I'm just reading more about that stuff. It's like um, Harvard, four Harvard affiliated residency programs, I guess have recognized that part of the problem for new doctors is the feeling that they're on their own in making important decisions on the care of patients and that they can't ask for help. And I imagine that that would be incredibly stressful and also even hurt patients. So they're working to improve how residents are trained to ask for help and even formalizing some many situations in which they are required to ask for help. And I think the point is that by formalizing 
those situations, they're basically sending a message like not only will you ask for help, but you attending physicians are not allowed to then turn around and say, well, you're an idiot for not knowing that or, you know, you're incompetent or whatever, you know, negative messages that they might otherwise received. I think it's going to take a while for for that cultural change to happen, but it's in response to research that found a third of, of critical patient events weren't passed on from residents to attending surgeons. And also a survey by the ACGME, the accrediting body for residency education programs, which found that most residents and fellows had personally experienced or witnessed situations in which there was inadequate supervision. What do you think? Is that going to work? I don't know. I did just see something like that happen, though, like in a surgery, like the resident it was a laparoscopic like robot surgery, which was so cool. But she, you know, robots she, are cool. She was trying to run the In robot. General. She was trying to run the robot, and uh, she was like, "Oh, is this the ureter?" And the doctor was like, "Seriously?" Mm-hmm. Like you know, like I mean, yeah, I guess she should know that, but it's a really weird angle, and she was just trying to be certain because if you nick the ureter, it's a really big problem. Yeah. So I don't know. And then her face, like I don't know. Like, I don't feel I like, like through I- through the mask, I could just see her face was just like. She died a little bit inside or something. I don't yeah. know. I don't know. Maybe maybe that's a little. I'm like, I guess. I, so afterwards, you know, they, he sort of like talked to her a little bit and was like, we need to get your confidence up. So I think that was the the goal. And like some people are more old school. We, need to, sort of we need to get your like confidence that. up. Don't do that again, you moron. Right. To me, that doesn't make any sense. But I think in some people's heads, you get confidence by like having it bullied into you almost. Because, like, that's how they went through the system. But, like, that doesn't work for a lot of people. Hmm. It's like the coaching methods. Like, if yeah. you go back to high school, you know, getting yelled at versus getting encouraged. And yeah, people start to realize. Turns like, out getting yelled at and shoved I feel doesn't like, really pick up your skills much. Well, I think it comes from the pull yourself up by your bootstraps mentality. Which I think is really hilarious. Because, actually, to pull oneself up by their bootstraps is an analogy for an impossible task. Because imagine lying on the floor and then trying to grab the little straps on the back of your boots and pull yourself to standing. Challenge accepted. I know, right? (laughs) Next week on the Short Coat Podcast. Our video next week will be... (laughs) Just Mark rolling. (laughs) On the floor. Yogic for 45 minutes. Yogic bootstrapping. I feel like there's a lot of analogies like that. So I I heard about it. uh, One of the staff members uh, in, in OSAC was telling me about a certain national organization involved with medical schools that was like kind of flailing right now with leadership changes and things like that. And among the quotes that he provided me was uh, from from a recent discussion was from a leadership saying, well, we're building the plane right now while we're flying it. Nice. Nice. That's a terrible analogy. That means you're all going to die. It's a little it's a little terrifying, isn't it? Choose another choose another analogy. My suggestion. Oh, God, we're all on the airplane. Uh, it turns out author and surgeon Atul Gawande is leading, led the Harvard effort. Good. He's awesome. He is awesome. Uh, he says that his study found residents didn't want to appear weak or get into trouble for being incompetent. Shocking. Mm-hmm. Why, why was that? Was it because they didn't want to be berated? Yeah. I mean, probably that and also just like med school self-selects a bunch of perfectionists. So, it, so isolation and humiliation... The power of isolation and humiliation should never be underestimated. And when you do something like that and you ostracize someone, especially in front of a group of their peers, Mm -hmm. you isolate and humiliate them. And I think we should never underestimate the power of damage that that can do Mm -hmm. on someone. They are powerful motivators, but I think they tend to motivate in the wrong direction. 
They direction. use the stick before they use the carrot. Well, it encourages people to hide mistakes as opposed to mm-hmm. actually fix them necessarily. So, And it encourages people to hide, like, if they're struggling with mental illness, for example, which might be a segue. It is. Uh, well done. <laughs> well oh. done. You're getting good at this after all these notes. <laughs> um, in the meantime, uh, you two segue. Dr. Jamie Riches... Uh, who is chief resident in medicine at Sloan Kettering Cancer Center, did what I thought was a pretty brave thing, which was to talk about her institution's response to the suicide of a fellow resident who jumped from a hospital building. I don't know how long, she didn't say how long ago, but she was careful to not cast her institution as toxic, but she did write a powerful piece that addressed its response to this event in what I thought were pretty unflinching terms. You know, and her main point, and I'll, of course, um, I think I, I did post this article already on the Shortcode podcast page on Facebook. And I got to tell you that when, after I posted this this link, it went, I mean, for us, <laughs> crazy. I mean, thousands of people, it was shared several, many times, you know, several times. It was, it went, you know, for us viral, which isn't much. But anyway, <laughs> the point, relative. it's all relative. But the point is that it really seemed to, unlike anything else I've posted on that on our Facebook page, it seemed to really hit a nerve, not just with us here at the college, at the Carver College of Medicine, but elsewhere. And I thought it says something. It says we should all be thinking about it, I guess. She says that while they were offered grief counseling, open forums to discuss their own reactions and feelings, um, other opportunities to come to terms, uh, there was a lot of institutional silence. And there were some, you know, sort of the language of emails, for instance, that was sent to you know sort of tell people about these things that are happening you know like come to the counseling you know center or whatever it was they sent they often referred to those efforts as you know housekeeping details which to me sends entirely the wrong message as an institution you know that might not be the best we're just going to sweep it under the rug and everybody back to work kind of thing even while they were i guess trying to in an institutional way address this particular event and you know there were you know she did also note in this article that there were a total of three people in new york city three residents who did the same exact thing in the past year which i don't know that's kind of a lot that's a lot (laughs) there's three to four hundred doctors every year die from suicide yeah that's like two medical school classes the suicide rate is 40 to 70 percent higher in men uh, physicians and 130 to 300 percent higher in women physicians. So yep. it's a problem. And uh, I guess what always frustrates me about hearing stuff like that is the level of, you know, like nervousness about addressing it. I think there's a strong incentive to to offer help and at the same time try to keep quiet or keep it quiet or something. I, I'm not that- sure what it feels like, what it feels like to me. That's the really important part of this. And I and it goes back to the, you know, what we were talking about earlier too. what, you know, Atul Gawanda was doing with that setting up and sort of forcing the discussion on, you know, making your mistakes or whatever. Not to say that this is a mistake to talk about, but that you're forcing a break in the culture of silence, because what we have is a cultural expectation that you can't talk about it, that it would be, you know, that that we're trying to respect something or respect somebody's wishes or something. And, and really what we need to discuss is a, is a public health crisis. I mean, 
this is uh, 400 physicians a year is that that's not just a medical school class. I mean, that's here. That's the entire medical school a year. Yeah. I mean, if you think about that, it's terrifying and it's untenable. And, you know, the people whose job it is to deal with the most some of the most challenging, humane elements of the care of people, their life and their death, feel that they have no place to go to talk about their problems or their issues and feel that there's a pressure on them to not talk about it, to not do anything, you know, for themselves. Yeah. And there's a there's a big movement towards saying, you know, go oh, go get help, go ask for help. But um, it's not an easy thing to do. There's no time for it. Yeah. For one thing, they don't actually there, there's no recourse for for students who might need to take a couple days off or a week off. You know, you just have to redo six week rotations. You have to redo the whole thing or three month rotations. If you need one month off for mental health, you have to redo the whole three months. They say, you know, there's words that are like, oh, you should go get help. But then every other message that you get is to not, is to just suck it up and tough it out. And that's true in residency too, according Mm to um, what Dr. Rich's experience, which is basically like, Just basically like, okay, um, back to work. There's patients to see. There's, you know, things to do. There's people to admit, you know, whatever tasks, those aren't slowing down for you. So suck it up and get back to work. I feel like a lot of the features that we're describing about the situation are some of the same things that people talk about relative to the army and the problems that veterans face when they come home. Like very, very similar, you know, trying to maintain this front of strength and credibility and that any type of weakness is discouraged and stigmatized because it threatens the image of the entire organization and the profession. You also lose a lot of ability to relate to everyone else in your life who's not in medicine. Like you don't have anything to talk about but medicine. So this you is not because of Sue. This is just yeah, in general. Yeah, this is just like medicine is an inherently isolating experience. Yeah. It just kind of pushes you. Yeah, and, like continuing the war analogy. You know, like yeah. no one can relate if I come home and I'm like, oh, my stroke patient bled out on the table today. Like no one can relate to what that feels like. Yeah. And and I think, you know, I think this is a really apt analogy, too, because I think, you know, soldiers, when they come home, experience a lot of isolation. They, mm-hmm. they can't talk about that. And you look at the statistics in America, and that is also a mortifying tragedy. I mean, we one uh, veteran a minute kills themselves. It's a problem. There were um, some suggestions that Dr. Rich has had. Well, let's just go through them. Um, she suggested eliminating the word burnout, uh, I think, because... It implies that there is an in, that there is a flaw or weakness that impairs someone's ability to just continue doing what they're doing. Yeah, it's very similar to shell shock, which is what they used to use to refer to PTSD. And it, you're right; I think it does imply a defect of personal character. Yeah, if you're burnt out, it meant you couldn't hack it, basically. Yeah, that's that's true, and that's kind of. Too bad, because I kind of like the word burnout, because it it sounds kind of like it feels when you're really it down. Is, it's very descriptive. You, you feel like yeah. someone just like all the in, all your insides are burned out, and you're just a hollow shell, like yeah. a struck match. Dream girl, I like that one. Young, <laughs> young movement <laughs> to like take out that word. Yeah. So one of the, one of the things that too that I think is there's also a generational divide. I think the yeah. generation before us like the term burnout actually meant like that was something that you might call a person 
Like, oh, so-and-so is a total burnout. Like, that was actually an insult. I can tell you from my high school days that's true. <laughs> what, Dave, will you, will you enlighten us on what a burnout is? Uh, well, a burnout uh, in high school, um, that meant the, the, the people who, uh, who apparently did a lot of drugs and just kind of sat there and, and existed during... You know, a lot of marijuana probably back then, but maybe more powerful stuff. How, what do I know? I was in the chess club, but uh, I was not in the chess club, but I was among the people who would have been in the chess club. You, but, you uh, weren't, you were too nerdy to I'm be too, in the no, chess I'm club. Too, I'm too stupid were... for chess. <laughs> to be honest with you, I've never been able to learn the moves and retain them for more than a few minutes. Um, You're like a goldfish. Yeah. But the, yeah, they were the people who, you know, were essentially considered useless. Not to put too fine a point on it. So the the one of the terms, and I and I don't entirely love the term because I think it it doesn't fully capture the kind of like what Casey said, you know, the whole feeling of it. But one of the terms they use is c- compassion fatigue. Mm-hmm. Oh, I've heard that. Yeah, it's a, it's a I mean, nicer way of putting it. <laughs> I guess so. But there's also just you know there's so many more components to you know if we were going to call it burnout there were so many more components to the word burnout you know like mm-hmm. it means that you just can't not only are you lacking. Comp- not only has your compassion been, you know, diminished, but you're also just unable to function as as you would be able to if you're in, you know, sort of top condition. She also suggests ending the stigma of mental health issues. Like, for instance, uh, have you ever sought treatment for any mental illness are on many job applications, including those for physicians? I mean, I feel like if the answer is yes, it should be good job. Right. Thank right? you. Yeah. I mean, you know, thank you for doing that. You're hired. <laughs> but I don't think that's the intent of the question. John raised a good point earlier, too, when he was saying was kind of those privacy concerns. I think that's a big stigma, too. I don't I mean, think some, it should be asked. Yeah. It should never it be asked. In fact, I think it's illegal asked. to ask it. It's illegal outside of the medical profession. Yeah. yeah. But it shows up a lot on licenses. Of, licenses and, and stuff. Yeah. It's, yeah. It, yeah. And in fact, it's a big it's a big part of the medical licensing yeah. system mm-hmm. is that you there are, in fact, very weird um, boards that depending on the state by state level sort of certify what counts or doesn't count in terms of treatment or things mm-hmm. like that if you mm-hmm. do have some sort of mental health problem and it causes an issue with your provision of care Mm -hmm. and they can actually almost to me it's like stalking like the board of medicine in certain states will actually stalk you to make sure you're doing all the things that they want you to do after they learn that you have a mental illness like even if even if you're basically like cured or basically dealing with it like they can still follow you which is infantilizing it is. I was gonna say. Uh, I think that's a real thing. Like they'll put you on probation. Oh, it's, yeah. it's definitely a real thing. Yeah. yeah. There's no. This problem. isn't like paranoid conspiracy. Like this is a real thing that <laughs> happens. Yeah. yeah. And for almost, in some cases, I think an, an indefinite period of time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like it could last, you know, for a couple months or up to six or seven or eight months. But they don't tell you that up front, even though there's no reason to warrant that. Like your the provision of care is fine, but because you have that history. They keep a close eye on you. Yeah. Yeah. So the, 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 the thing is that it lacks transparency and it lacks accountability. And that, again, is why I'm saying, you know, and why I'm excited about the breakage of the culture of silence mm-hmm. is that the more we bring these things to discuss, the harder and harder I think it is for people to maintain this sort of status quo. I was going to say one of the major issues I see in this whole kind of 
topic is that institutions, you know, when things happen, they're like, oh, well, they, it's implied that something was wrong with this person that they didn't ask for help. They're like, we offer this and we offer that and we give a lecture on burnout. So there's this implication that it was that person's fault that they didn't follow everyone's advice instead of the institution going back and saying, oh, we offer all this. Why didn't these people ask for help? Yeah. Like maybe it's not the person's problem. Maybe it's the institution system problem, but they never look back that direction. One of the things they were talking about, well, we referenced earlier with feedback of formalizing like mandatory review periods, but the idea of mentorship, if you put that towards mental health, like we're going to check in periodically and it's kind of almost a forced, everybody will go through this. It will be discussed with everyone. I know at the beginning here, they started that. They encouraged, I got a couple emails because I didn't do it at first, but going to the counseling center and sitting, you mm -hmm. know, and you spend 20 minutes with them and just check in your first semester. I think that'd be an awesome thing to just keep going. The, the, so the idea there is to sort of diminish the perception that, you know, being there, having that conversation is a problem. Yeah, it's well, not. It's just yeah. almost like preventative medicine. It's yeah. the idea of you're going in for a checkup. This is something everyone does. This is one that ought, one ought to do. There may be no issues and that's fine. But if there are, you're here. So one of the things that I think was really interesting, I think it was the Mayo Clinic. They looked at physician groups and how to increase resilience among physician groups. And I don't remember what their endpoint was, so that makes it a little more challenging. But so they they did basically a randomized controlled trial where they tested, you know, we're going to give ev protected time every two weeks for the f staff physicians. And let's say it was, you know, one hour. We're going to either, you know, give them this one hour to get their work done. We're going to give them one hour to do this, like, self-help book thing or we're going to give them one hour where they have this sort of structured peer group where they have it's peer-led and they basically have an agenda where they basically are forced to discuss these kinds of issues it's like a they, mandatory debriefing session yeah every two yeah. weeks and then they followed them they i think they did it for six months and followed them for a year or something like that and then they looked at like burnout scores some sort of you know self inventory just like depression scales um and the only group that really improved at all was the group of peers who got together and were essentially forced to discuss these things yeah another thing that mayo clinic assume they still do that i think they might uh but another thing that they do that i would like to know what kind of like if studies have been done on it is that every resident and like if there's a med student in that unit or whatever every resident and med student has like one attending that they just work with for the whole time and you only round on those patients instead of everybody getting in a giant cluster and going around to every patient's room even if they're not your patient people just round on their own patients and you just work with this one main doctor and it's almost more like a like an apprenticeship style thing there I'm like, i think that sounds awesome there it makes their hours a little better it makes their workload a little less overwhelming seeming because you aren't also like running around with everybody else's patients um and then you get to really bond with that one sort of mentor figure i think it sounds really cool interesting i think casey raises an awesome point um it seemed and mark kind of touched on this earlier it seems like the best venue to address this is by strengthening personal relationships mm -hmm. in the medical yes. community, maybe through either peer mentorship 
or mentorship with a superior? I think there's value in superior mentorship because they've walked roads of like, this is how it was in the past or this is how it is here and it's great. But it's probably one or the other. Too. Yeah, and it's just, it's super beneficial. I, I think, and that's that's why, you know, there and there are ways of striking the balance between that. I think because, you know, if, if you have a mentor, for example, if you have a small group and you have, let's say, you know, a f- small group of first and second year med students and they're facilitated by a third or fourth year med student and they get together and they discuss sort of coping mechanisms and how things are going and things like that with the person who is on a different level, whether it be a resident, a physician or the student who's sort of out of that context. One, they haven't already sort of built their story about what's going on. Two, they have had some experience in that realm. And three, because they're removed from that realm, it kind of decreases the likelihood that it just becomes like a complaint session mm-hmm. where everyone just kind of whines about stuff and more focuses on, you know, what we can do to move forward, what we can do to, you know, help progress things. Is complaining a bad thing? No, complaining is amazing. Complaining actually so tends to increase people's dissatisfaction and bad feelings because the rumination sort of aspect of it, you get caught in that cycle and people mm. actually tend to come out of those sessions feeling worse than they do when they, it's more like a processing, work things out kind of feeling. The only thing that you should do is not complain though. Like that's- Oh yeah, like yeah. There's that's research. There's like research. not complaining is not the best solution, but like straight up just complaining yeah. is not- is the thing it feels good at the time yeah um, there's research that just it doesn't really doesn't make do. you know, we, i think what you're getting at uh casey is more like commiserating yeah, the idea yeah, of yeah, we yeah. are going through this together yeah and there, there is good. a difference of like there is an end i'm not the only one i'm not weird for feeling this way like mm-hmm. this is inherently a frustrating experience yeah but it will end we will get through i like i mean i really like john's suggestion of kind of multiple levels because even just this week, watching all the new M ones, and they're so excited and happy, and it I know, nice. uh, I know, at some point I was that happy, and I'm at the end of my surgery rotation, and I am just done with stuff right now, and but you know, like, and maybe I'd be frustrated occasionally with that, but to see someone else like remember that, yeah, I was there at one point, I was really excited to do this, but also for them to be see that it's not always happy-go-lucky, like expecting that there are hard times and talking with people who've gone through it and like what's been good, what's been bad, um, to just kind of all that levels of stuff. And I think that could even foster better goodwill between classes because everyone's like, oh, I went through it. Like you shouldn't complain so much. It was just as bad for me and it gets worse sort of thing where it's like, yes, it was bad for me, but I didn't realize, you know what I mean? When you don't, it's all comp- relative. Yeah. We've had people so. in our class, like complaining that the class below us got to use like a cheat sheet for biochem, but I mean, they made their own cheat sheet and it was just like, you could draw up pathways and like, I thought that was better, but there were a bunch of people that were like, we didn't get to do that. I mean, that's, I'm I like, get that a lot in who medicine. Cares? Yeah. Like, yeah. Who cares? You survived. Was, Shut up. Move yeah. on. I would not yeah. wish, I would not wish that test on my worst enemy. <laughs> like, why, why do you want to put all the why can't, first yeah. years through it? Why I, can't you say you're so lucky yeah. that you got to do that? Good job. You know, like, I, I loved you. those tests. Oh, screw you. So that's a diagnostic <laughs> for weirdness. <laughs> you're, so, you're a freak in many ways. Well, this actually brings up uh, one of her other points, which is decide what graduate education is. And... If you've listened to the show for long enough, you've heard us talk about this Keenan Laraway's rant uh, from <laughs> not 
I don't know, a year ago, more, two years or whatever ago, it was, two years that? ago already. No, uh, maybe it was just yeah, a, year maybe it was ago. a year ago. He was he was yeah, done. Yeah. To, to be honest done. with you, it doesn't it doesn't bear even going back to listen to that podcast because all of the good parts of it had to be edited out. Yeah. That's true. But <laughs> I remember listen. But this was before I was a medical student. I will try. I will try. I promise the next couple of times that I, that I come on the podcast to deliver it. In a slightly less jaded way, uh. but I, I definitely, and I've been thinking about this too, Dave. Like yeah. I have, oh, I have, I a, get a good so one. many of the things that he said now in a way that I was understanding and empathic earlier, but now I like really get where he's where he's saying that. Like one of his lines was, you know, it's a game. You're playing a game. You don't get to know the rules of until the game is over. Mm-hmm. Okay, so Keenan was ranting, you know, sometimes we're penalized for not being helpful. And the problem with that is that we're not here to be helpful, he said. We're here to learn. And my thought when he said that was, you know, okay, I get it. But at the same time, you're, you're here to learn about systems. And one of the things that you're learning about is what everybody in the system does. And that means that in order to learn, you first have to do. And that means that you have to do some scut work in order to learn all of this stuff that you're that you need to know to find balance so so one of these things that i that i've noticed and i've noticed it 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 in the students get enculturated very quickly to this people go you know oh i i need to go i need to go to this case in the or you know i need they need me to help out what, what i i had this wait, exact what, same what thought you, what, what, yeah. what, wait what no 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 you're you like you have a learning opportunity that's like required that this is like you're going to let's say you're going to go to a discussion section or something and they're like well you know i need i need to and they need me there to help out it's like well wait a minute <laughs> so they've convinced you that your primary role here is not as a learner but your primary role here is as unpaid labor yes. and not only yes. are you unpaid labor you and unprotected paying. labor but you're paying yeah you're paying to be labor and and it, again and it's not it's not you know, it's not just surgery. There are a um, lot of places in medicine where I, I'm doing something and I'm like, well, yeah, I'm being helpful. But at the same time, you could pay someone with a high school degree, a you know, bachelor's degree, way less than I am paying per day to be there when I am just doing something that requires absolutely no mindful work at all. Um, you know, I'm paying here to learn stuff. And if I'm just like the only thing I'm learning is how to hold a leg without moving for two hours... Like, that's a waste of my money. Like, and not that I don't want to be helpful. Like, if I'm getting something out of the experience and being helpful, then by all means, I will do it. But you should invent a clamp that you would know, do that job. There's a lot of stuff that can be invented. You could to invent do things a clamp like that. that would make a lot of money and be like, well, okay. I helped out med students at the same time. The clamp will never make you profit, though. No. The med student will. Oh, okay. Also, clamps don't take abuse very well. <laughs> I think the point about helping is part of that social contract. It refers to something deeper between human beings where someone more senior in the clinic has an obligation to teach you and help you and then you return the favor by doing little things. But I agree with Lisa, it shouldn't come at the expense of the primary reason for being there, which is to learn. Yeah. Especially because you're investing a colossal amount of money over the course of your lifetime basically to be there. So. I don't know if you guys agree, but the kind of helping I I thought was appropriate was like following up on a test result or calling in for a follow-up, stuff like that, mm -hmm. which empowered me to learn 
other skills that are important for healthcare, but not. You, you learn know. to navigate the system. You learn to kind of, you know, evaluate what you're looking for and stuff. Yeah, you yeah. can cover that whole leg holding thing in like five seconds yeah. by being like, well, it's important for this leg to be still and elevated in this position. And okay, let's move on. And a big part of it, honestly, too, I think is it becomes an issue very quickly when the expectation and the return don't match up, right? So like if they, you know, expect you to do it because it's, you know, because you're the student, it's automatically going to feel different Mm -hmm. than, than it is if you are thanked for, you know, I, so I had to get medical records from the U.S. military on a patient from like seven years ago. And so they had some inkling of the amount of effort required and thanked me enormously for my effort. And because I, nice. I spent all morning basically yeah. uh, faxing, finding some weird requisition yeah. form, <laughs> faxing it. And of course, we'll, you know, six months later, after it's not important anymore, they'll get the fax from the, you know. <laughs> but, but there's a huge difference in, in me yeah. being helpful there. And someone sort of indignantly saying, you're a student. This is your job. Especially when a resident starts out like, I know this isn't your job, but I'm really busy today. Would you be willing to find a phone number for this hospital or something? Which is at work. Fine. You're like, I'm totally okay doing that. But when it's like, why didn't you find this phone number? You're the student. You're supposed to do things like this. Like there's a whole different, Mm -hmm. a whole different thought there. The um, another one I wanted to another recommendation that I wanted to talk about was just supporting each other. And we've already talked about it, but except that medicine, this is her final point, except that medicine is not martyrdom. The work does not stop. Let it not deplete us. Let us take care of each other and ourselves and not give away everything that we need. Um, what does that mean to you? Do you think that's the beauty of the humanities program here? It's one of the things that attracted me. It's the idea of you are a person outside of medicine. Mm -hmm. It's, it's not just a job. I don't want to say that, but uh, it's a special thing. You're allowed to have other special things in life. Yeah. Hence my Saturday idea. Mm-hmm. Keeping Saturdays for yourself. Yeah. I think it's supposed to be a big part of your life, but yeah. I think Mark is right. It's not supposed to be your whole life. It's because, not the only one. Yeah. Like, especially now that they're trying to, at least here, they're trying to select sort of whole people, but then the whole people get inserted into the system that's made of, like, slimmed down robot people. And it's very chafing. It's very chafing for the whole people that go. You feel like in. a bad person. Am yeah. I lazy for you know wanting to take Saturday off? Am I a horrible human being because I can only work six days? Is somebody start gonna, to believe it? Is somebody die because I didn't read that chapter a third time? Yeah. So so I th- I think it's that, that's a really interesting like just general way of thinking about work, and I start to see a lot more of this kind of thinking in our you know, and people in our generation, because I, I, you know, in the younger generations in general, I mean, Dave, you, you come into this fold too. People think differently about work now and about what mm-hmm. defines you about your work. And, and, and I'm thankful for that because, you know, once upon a time, the small town doctor, you know, sort of knew everything about there was really about medicine and, and could do the things that you could do in medicine uh, for basically all their patients, you know, they could do house calls. They could, but the thing is, it's so busy and it's so fragmented and it's so subspecialized. And there's, and there's so, so much, much more information. Fifty that, years ago, that you could know everything. That there's no way you can indeed be a whole person and do this at the same time, and you can't be a whole person and a whole physician in that sense. You can't know all of the stuff. 
you can't do all of the stuff and then also like come away and raise three children and you know have a thriving marriage and you know all of these things even if it's the only thing you do you can't know all of the stuff <laughs> there is now just officially too much stuff good choice on the word thriving too um one thing that comes up a lot in the mstp um which came up last week during our retreat it's always you know work-life balance and everyone always is looking for the magic answer for how to balance you know a very ambitious career with also having a life and raising a family and one of the people on this alum panel that we had made a very good point, which is that we talk about work-life balance, but what we're doing is inherently, it would throw a normal person off balance. And so it's not, there's no easy answers. Can I make a plug for our, our new club? Yeah, yeah, that's, okay, that's uh, a good idea. That's very relevant today. So in part because of like these conversations about mental health that we're starting to have in the medical community, I and a group of other medical students are starting a branch of NAMI, which is the National Alliance on Mental Illness, in the Carver College of Medicine. And our goal is to promote normalization and destigmatization of people who suffer from mental illness and to show that it's okay um, to do it. It doesn't have to be the end of your life and you don't have to suffer in silence. And it is possible to thrive with something like depression. Um, which is sort of the more common one. But I mean, I'm sure there are people out there in somewhere in med school who have like bipolar um, or, or some other more severe there absolutely are, mental yeah. illness. Yeah, I bet there are. Yeah. Um, but you can treat that and you can manage it and you can still have a, a full thriving life and be a successful professional. Um, so we're, we're working on a lot of different initiatives. And one of them is to have, you know, sort of in the future to have like small like peer support groups that people can go to. We're gonna make uh, learning community liaisons who can be sort of the safe person to talk to who's on the same level as the other students, who knows all the resources and can point you to resources or just be someone for you to talk to. Um, because if you're so struggling that you can't even get out of bed, it doesn't matter what resources there are, if you don't know how to find them, you just That's don't- That's really true, yeah. You don't have the energy. You're mm -hmm. not empowered to go find them. That's something that would be challenging for a person who's 100% functional, yeah. actually. Like seeking out the right counselor or the yeah. right programs for help. But if you're someone who's at baseline disproportionately having a lower threshold for that type of thing, then there's it's very, very difficult. Yeah, yeah. And to, to try to um, provide trainings for um, people who want to be able to help like friends in crisis or recognize it in their friends or in themselves. Um, to sort of know what to do to have those tough conversations and maybe help bring someone back from the edge and encourage them to go get help. So that's sort of, that's our that's our goal. Fantastic. Um, and I'm super crazy excited about it. So Fantastic. anybody who's already at school here, we are actively recruiting uh, for people who want to be like on the cabinet uh, and be those learning community liaisons. Nice, so. nice. What positions are available, Casey? Oh, uh, I mean, any of them. <laughs> um, so the, everyone on the cabinet will be also a learning community liaison, but you're going to have an alternate. So we're going to have co-presidents. We're going to have like a treasurer and an alternate treasurer, uh, secretary slash outreach, and then like an alternate. And then I think there was like one other one. Um, but it's basically it's four positions and four like alternates, which doesn't mean that you're less. It just means that we're doubling down to take some of the stress and pressure off of what the people who i know is that, 
Is that even legal? Did I just blow your mind right now? Can that happen in medicine? So then if somebody actually can't show up for a meeting, they don't have to feel guilty and they don't have to skip other things and they just mm-hmm. have a person who's ready to step in and help them. It's almost like we care about each other. You crazy kids. Well, good. That sounds great. Um, I think that we are... Uh, that we, I've had... I've, I've loved this conversation today. Thank you so much. I, you know, sometimes I worry about you guys and... And, um... I think it's uh, I think it's important that we talk about this once in a while. So, um, listeners, uh, let us know what you think about our discussion today because it's a pretty important one. Um, and uh, if you like what you hear, go to iTunes. Whether you use iTunes or not, give us a review. Uh, the reviews there help us grow the show. And as always, we're listening all over the place. Send us an email at theshortcodes@gmail.com. Hit us up on Facebook or Twitter. Send us some snail mail. You can figure that out. Um, the show is made possible by a generous donation by Carver College of Medicine, Student Government, and the Ready Entities Program. Our executive producer is Jason Lewis. Our editor and engineer is Aline Sando. Our opening music is by Dr. Box. And our closing music <laughs> is by Agrifox. Talk to you in one week. Tori Matt. What? <laughs> that, that was for Corey. Put, put that sound bite in his MSP or whatever.